You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome, listeners, to Episode 3 of the Book of Nature podcast, a monthly podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences. Or do they? Is it really three Christians who work in the sciences, or is it two Christians who work in the sciences, and one Christian who works in a pretend science? We'll find out today. To my metaphorical right, we have Todd Pedler, Associate Professor of Physics at Luther College, located on the banks of the beautiful Upper Iowa River in Decorah, Iowa. Todd, how are you today? Uh, after that introduction, I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> A little cold here, but uh, but uh, that's okay. That's okay. Feeling like January and November. Well, I hear you like that I sort do. of thing. I do. It's, uh, nothing, mm. nothing wrong with a brisk uh, north wind. All right. Uh, to my equally metaphorical left is Dan Dawson, a research meteorologist with the Center for the Analysis and Prediction of Storms at the University of Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plains, located in Norman, Oklahoma. Dan, how goes it in Tornado uh, Alley? It's decidedly non-tornadic right now. It's also cold here. The wind has definitely come sweeping down the plains. Uh, we had a nice little snowfall the other day, which is mostly gone. Uh, but it's it, I'm like I'm with Todd. I like I like that kind of brisk cold weather and some snow from time to time. Oh goodness! Uh, okay, uh, just uh, just letting you know, Dan, that uh, your research center is causing me great confusion. Oh uh, uh, well, it goes by the acronym yes. CAPS, uh, and I am a member of the Christian Association for Psychological oh Studies, boy. which goes by the acronym CAPS. We're gonna have to call them CAPS One and CAPS Two, or I don't know, something like that. Well, I don't know. Uh, seems to me that the only solution to the situation is a duel. Ah. Uh, we we. <laughs> Yeah, so we will see if your weather control powers can defeat my mind control powers. <laughs> Get okay. out the super hyper Doppler. We'll have, we'll have, yeah, no kidding. There we'll we have to go. Discuss terms at, at some future date. Yeah. Yes. Winner gets access to the All acronym. Right. A, a worthy yes. prize. And finally, in a metaphorical space approximately two inches behind my eyes, I am Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the dense urban jungle of Karenport, Saskatchewan. Uh, we begin today's episode, ladies and gentlemen, with a brand new segment, Listener Feedback. This is an especially exciting development for us, as this is our first bit of Listener Feedback. Uh, this feedback comes to us via our Gmail account, which, remember, listeners, is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Sent in by Jeffrey Gailey. Jeffrey is a high school biology teacher. Uh, his email is a bit on the large size, so I will be summarizing and reading a few specific snippets. He writes, Hello, fellow readers of the Book of Nature. Hello back, Jeffrey. I have been a long-time listener of the Christian Humanist Podcast and was so excited to hear that you would be launching the Book of Nature Podcast. Thank you, Jeffrey. We are excited as well. Jeffrey goes on to provide a bit of autobiographical background, detailing some of his intellectual and spiritual struggles, as well as his aversion to deadlines. Uh, Jeffrey, in the words of the space hippies from the Star Trek original series episode, Way to Eden, I reach that, brother. I really do. <laughs> 
He goes on to say, I think that your project is tremendously, is incredibly important. I hope that uh, there are those who listen to it and uh, to get a better understanding of God and his great work in creation. And I pray that there are listeners who find moments of hopes uh, in the words that you all speak around issues of faith and reason. Uh, Jeffrey provides a substantial list of suggestions for possible future topics. Uh, here are a few examples. So again, this is not the entire list. This is uh, just a few of them. Uh, one uh, suggestion that he offers is, what are your thoughts on Stephen Jay Gould's ideas of NOMA? Um, which is, uh, stands for non-overlapping overlapping magisteria. Uh, I like it. Good topic. That uh, that will definitely be one to keep in mind uh when, and I'm sure we're going to do this at some point, uh, do an episode or maybe a series of episodes, uh, it could be a, a triptych or something like that, uh, on the general topic of the relationship between science and religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, connected with this, there was also a suggestion for an episode uh, featuring Andrew Dixon White's conflict thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, I think, is a very good uh, idea. This is something that uh, all three of us have batted around uh, as an idea. Mm-hmm. So that, um, this would be a good one. Uh, to make sure you know, we're good and read up on uh, this uh, history of the conflict uh, and dive yeah, into that one. Uh, so, yes. Down the pipe yeah. Point. Hopefully not too far. Yeah, Gould's idea of uh, uh, that particular approach to resolving the situation would be one that we would certainly cover. Uh, if we talked about this, uh, this how, how to deal with this conflict thesis. Yep. Um, a second one. Uh, R.C. Sproul's Not a Chance. Uh, I have not read this, uh, but uh, it sounds like it might be one for you, Todd. Mm -hmm. Uh, As Jeffrey says, it involves quantum mechanics and Big Bang cosmology. Yeah, I've got it. I haven't read it. So, uh, but but definitely I I think it'd be a good good possibility for us. Mm -hmm. All right. Sounds good to me. That's good. Any suggestions that keep us rolling down our uh, to-read list uh, are good suggestions. Uh, we also had a couple of psych- psychology suggestions. Uh, we had a suggestion for an episode on the psychology of atheism. Uh, I could certainly do that. Uh, when I teach psychology of religion, I do a lecture on this topic, looking at it from a few different theoretical angles. Uh, so that's a good possibility. Other question uh, was whether or not a positive psychologist, that would be me, could affirm total depravity. Uh, Jeffrey, I actually have an article in press right now on positive psychology and original sin. Uh, so the short answer to your question is yes. The slightly longer answer is, dude, don't get me started, or I will fill the entire episode doing nothing but talk about positive psychology uh, and Christian perspectives on human nature. Well, all right, you can do that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I could, could have uh, one of those .01 episodes or whatever. Or no, I think we need. Oh, there we go. And the backup singers. Ah, I'm okay. sure we could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could uh, resonate. Certainly, certainly. Yep. All right. Uh, there were some others on the list. Uh, some good ideas there, uh, Jeffrey. We uh, we have a growing list of topics for future episodes, and now that list is even longer. Listeners, if you have suggestions for future episodes, let us know. The email, remember, is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Moving on then from feedback, uh, turning now to the topic for today's episode, uh, we will be addressing the question of whether or not psychology is a real science. 
Uh, our readings to kick off the discussion are a pair of op-ed pieces that were published uh, a couple of years ago in the L.A. Times. Uh, Timothy D. Wilson, a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, uh, asserted that psychology is in fact a science and should be treated as such, uh, and accused hard scientists of being a bunch of snobs. Uh, the following day, uh, Dr. Alex B. Berezo, uh, editor of RealClearScience.com, published a response. Uh, arguing that psychology should not be treated as a science because it is, in fact, not a science. Links to these articles will be included in the show notes. All right, uh, Todd, I've yammered enough here for the introduction. I will pass you the conch shell. Um, a little Lord of the Flies reference for those of you that are cool. Uh, could you summarize for us the arguments presented by Doctors Wilson and Berezo uh, for our first shot at evaluation? Uh, and what do you think of Berezo's five criteria for scientific rigor, and uh, how did his criteria line up with other lists uh, that you have encountered? Well, I'm glad. Uh, let me say before I get going here, uh, I'm glad that you're the one that uh, decided upon this topic, uh, because if either Dan or I had uh, suggested suggested this topic as a, a title for a show I think you might have <laughs> you might have found uh, a little bit uh, something a little bit odd with with that suggestion I suppose but it's your show so I'm happy to to summarize these things um, as you noted th this dis discussion in quotes took place in the op-ed pages of the LA Times um, uh, uh, a place for hearty scholarly debate. Uh, I suppose um, so that just to, I'll, I'll begin I'll begin with that comment because uh, these are clearly op-ed uh, pieces and not scholarly treatises yeah that um, that much that much was apparent in reading both of them <laughs> well, and you could you could get that from the title of the first which right. is stop bullying the soft sciences yeah um, and so I you know I, I, I read them with I guess with a little bit of skepticism in in mind, just knowing the venue from which they they came, and uh, Dr. Wilson didn't disappoint um, when when starting his article, uh, he begins with a, an anecdote of a re relatively, I would say, not relatively, certainly plainly rude remark by a faculty colleague in biology who was at a meeting with Dr. Wilson and in the course of discussion noted that he, the biologist, was the only scientist present. Uh, and Wilson went on to uh, correct him and apparently received a rather dismissive wave of the hand. Um, now, I've known my fair share of quote-unquote hard scientists who would either agree with the biologist's point of view or even join him in the gesture. Um, but I'd have to say this entree into the discussion sounds like what's going to come next is uh, something of a rant. Um, and, and again, Wilson didn't disappoint. He kind of does this a little bit in this article. So the tone makes it a little bit hard to take completely objectively what is being said. Not that I necessarily disagree with him, but it's an op-ed piece. I mean, so we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I think just to interject there, I think that that was largely my impression as well. I don't necessarily disagree with him, but the tone was certainly a little bit tough to stomach at points. Now, let let me ask Charles. Charles, are, are we just hard scientists being snobs? Well, it it 
Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, you are. You are all snobs. You're terrible people, and you should feel bad about that. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. My hat has been handed to me. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll stick the con. Uh, the con <laughs> shell will be underneath it. Um, I'm thinking hey, about no, he... what kind of meme you could make that into. Oh, uh, sorry, sure. just on my head. Just I'm sure we could. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Um. No, he argues that hard scientists have undertaken snobbery, which, uh, okay, for what it's worth, that's what he said. Um, in regarding physics and chemistry and biology, for instance, I suppose he would also include astronomy and geology and so forth, uh, as more legitimate as sciences than psychology, sociology, anthropology, per se, uh, the soft sciences are. And he cites the recent decision by uh, voting Congress to stop funding via the National Science Foundation political science research as as evidence for this um, and um, uh, as evidence for that attitude leaking into the public. Um, and, and then he goes on to cite some further opinion columnists who approved the decision and then called even for further removing of funding for any social science research at all. Um, the key complaint from one of the columnists um, that, he, that, that Wilson quotes um, was that the social sciences do not, uh, contra the physical sciences, which produce many detailed and precise predictions, the social sciences do not. The reason is that such predictions almost always require randomized controlled experiments, which are seldom possible when people are involved. This was a, an op-ed uh, author from the New York Times that, that Wilson cites. Um, he then goes on to state that the contrary is true, and the, and the meat of his argument seems to be, and this is where I think the, the argument sort of falls apart a little bit, the, the meat of his argument seems to be that many people have been helped by the results of psychological research and psychotherapy, and therefore it's hard science. He does list several areas in which some study... Uh, some studies are done that are very careful, very carefully controlled um, uh, experiments. Um, but I, I, the tone that I kept getting was, well, that well, this is good. This is good. This should be supported because many, many people have been helped. And, and in fact, he goes on to cite billions of dollars of savings by psychological studies that have shown some programs or interventions to be ineffective. Um so really, the, the, the bulk of the letter is uh, a, a, a several studies that are cited. Well, they're not cited. There's, it is said that there was a study in this area, there was a study in this area, and so forth, um, that ended up helping people by the results of the study. He finishes, I think, on a, on a good note, where he argues that social sciences aren't always careful as they ought to be as practitioners of experimental science, but uh, that they are, in fact, becoming more consistent. And then he cites another study you know, as evidence of that. Um, he says, finally, that social science isn't perfect, but it's, it studies a very complex thing, human beings. So it really is challenging um, to do things well. And that's sort of where he leaves it. Now, before we go on and, 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 and rehash or, or, or discuss some of the items in there, I want to get to the second article, which appeared the next day, um, entitled Why Psychology Isn't Science by Alex Berzo. Um, and his response also leaves a little bit to be desired, in my opinion. Um, he contends that, contra Wilson's assertion, 
hard scientists aren't being snobs. They're uh, they're 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 simply intellectually frustrated, um, and the frustration arises, he says, when non-scientists persist in arguing that they are in fact scientists. Um, Berzo stakes his claim that psychology should not be considered a science on five criteria for a field to be considered scientifically rigorous, and uh, those are the, the following. Um, here, these are his five criteria. Uh, number one, clearly defined terminology. Number two, quantifiability. Number three, highly controlled experimental conditions. Number four, reproducibility. And number five, uh, predictability and testability. So, and these sound familiar, right? For listeners to this show, we just talked about um, some of these items in our last podcast, uh, the second episode on, on science versus scientism. Um, Berzo cites one in particular example, which seems to me to be a particularly glaring example of poor science, um, namely happiness research, as he calls it, um, which he argues fails the first two criteria of clearly defined terminology and quantifiability, um, namely because who agrees really on what being happy is? And secondly, what quantity exactly is measured when you measure Happiness? Are you measuring uh, transmitters in the brain? No, his 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 argument is you're measuring on a on a numerical scale how happy you are, um, which he says is a problem, and I would tend to agree with that. Because of he argues then that because of failing one and two, it can't succeed really in passing any of the other three. And you can imagine that if you can't agree necessarily on definitions and you don't have a quantity that's uh, rigorously reproducible. Um, and then you're going to fail the rest of the, the criteria for, for rigorous science. Um, his argument is very brief, could be more t- detailed, of course. Uh, but again, this is an op-ed. This isn't the scholarly treatise. Um, at the end of his letter, he does note that some psychological research is more rigorously scientific than others. But then he ends uh, with a reiteration of his basic claim in which he basically says that as a whole, it can't be included, ought not to be included among the sciences. Um, so I'm going to address the five points as you asked me to, but I, I thought maybe before I do that, would you two like to weigh in on the letters? Well, um, uh, like I already said, I more or less agree with your assessment of the first, uh, letter, although, um, I can totally understand, um, I guess it was uh, Wilson's uh, frustration or shall I say feeling like he has to rant because um, I think that there's a lot of uh, times that when people dismiss psychology or sociology or, or even other fields that they don't know much about as not being uh, scientific, it's really out of a position of ignorance of what actually is going on more than anything else. And that if they were to take the time to actually look into what actual real psychologists do or real sociologists do or any of the other quote unquote soft sciences, then they may not, you know, necessarily have that same kind of opinion. So I can, I can see where his frustration is coming from. Um, but, um, on the other hand, I was kind of, uh, annoyed a little bit by the fact that he was using the criterion that, Oh, it's helped a lot of people. Well, that in and of itself doesn't make it scientific, in my opinion. Um, it's great that it helps people, and uh, certainly it, it does. And I myself have been the beneficiary of, of good uh, psychological uh, um, 
counseling and other things. So it definitely does help people. But um, I think he would have done better to look at, uh, to explain how uh, certain of these studies, what kinds of, uh, you know, quantifiable, uh, repeatable results were found in these studies that would kind of give it, give his argument more weight. Even though I, again, I do tend to agree uh, with him that psychology is a science. I'll just lay my cards on the table, but um, I just, Hooray! I just don't think that his, his letter really, it went down, I think the wrong direction in that regard. Um, I, I do also agree with you, Todd, about his, uh, his uh, statement that to admission that uh, social scientists have not always taken advantage of, of the experimental methods and haven't been as rigorous as they could be. And, you know, that, that's, that's a good um, thing to say because it, it's true, but it's also true of a lot of other scientific fields, even ones that we would consider hard science sciences. So um, right. we all could stand to try to make our methods more rigorous. Um, and I don't think psychology is necessarily any worse off than any other field in that regard. Um, uh, just real quick, uh, turning to, uh, Berzo's article, I thought his attitude was really dismissive and off-putting to be honest, um, where he just is, you know, flat out search. Oh, it's not a science. And, uh, and he lays out these criteria, which, you know, as we discussed last time, even defining what these criteria are is difficult in what they mean. And so, uh, just just by those criteria, you could really start to exclude lots of areas that are already considered science, and I think we're going to talk about that. Um, and I'll just push back again, uh, uh, on you just a little bit about the happiness stuff. I do agree that that is something that is not very well defined, but um, even if you consider happiness to be you know culturally relative or relative from person to person, I still think it's, you could get something interesting out of studies of happiness, provided that you, you are just defining it as what the person subjectively feeling, you know, and they can define it. If you define a scale for them, then they can say, okay, I'm like you said, a 3.7 out of five. Um, and I would suspect that if you were to design your studies well enough, you should be able to get at least some kind of repeatable, quantifiable information out of that, even if you don't really know exactly what it is you're measuring. But that's just, that's just a thought I had there. Um, hmm. but, uh, I, I, but it's good that he did acknowledge that, uh, that there is more, that parts of psychology could be science, which makes it all the more puzzling why he then just doubles that back down on it and says, no, it's not. So I was a little confused by that, but that, those are just some of my thoughts, but mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. Uh, interesting. The, uh, what you were describing as a possible approach to happiness research is almost word for word, precisely how uh, Ed Diener uh, has been doing happiness research since the 1980s. Uh, he, uh, his definition of happiness or, or subjective well-being uh, involves self-reports of the frequency of positive emotion, frequency of negative emotion, and subjective evaluation of one's life as being a desirable one. And uh, yeah, while that may be a little bit difficult, and and, and I have actually argued. Uh, for the viability of other possible definitions of happiness, we can certainly run studies 
using that. And we can do things like uh, we, we can um, cor- uh, calculate correlations uh, between subjective well-being scores and annual income, for example, and you know, try to address the question, can money actually buy happiness? Uh, short answer, it's complicated. Uh, we can uh, do uh, comparisons between groups. So even if uh, the definition of happiness is um, open to question and the, uh, <coughs> uh, the operationalization and measurement of happiness uh, is you know, also open to question, if we find that uh, mean happiness scores for one group are substantially higher than mean happiness scores for another group, it doesn't seem terribly unscientific to conclude from that that the group with the higher average happiness scores might actually be a happier group. Well, I think you'd have, you'd have to be careful with that, right? I mean, the, what the other group could be more deceived. I mean, there there are there are reasons why. I mean, I you know I I go when I saw that suggestion, and I realize he's overly simplifying um, what goes on, and, and probably doesn't understand it very well at all himself anyway. Um, you know, I I go to the doctor's office, and and you've got that happy scale or the the pain scale right on the on the wall, and I know those numbers vary greatly from people person to person and there are many many reasons why they might one might be that they actually are in the say at the same level of pain but they report it differently for various reasons uh there were others might be that they are in fact experiencing different levels of pain um so i think i mean i mean this just gets back to the quantifiability criterion i mean you have to be careful to make sure you're measuring what you think you're measuring. And I think that's all I would call upon psychologists to do is to make sure that, you know, somehow you normalize individual differences out or, or what have you, um, before simply attributing a higher happiness grade to more happiness. And, uh, well, we, we, we do try, uh, Depending on who's running the study and how the study's being run, there are ways of uh, statistically controlling for individual difference variables. Uh, also, any psychologist worth his salt who wants to run uh, studies will put the time and the effort into verifying uh, the psychometric qualities of the measures being used to make sure that uh, they are, in fact, reliable uh, and uh, valid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and that, and that, and that's good, and that's I think all any hard scientist ought to demand really is that care is taken in that way. Um, well, so let me briefly just talk about the the criteria that Berzo notes. I mean, um, I I think they're pretty good, quite frankly, and I guess I don't I don't share the skepticism that Dan expressed in terms of how one defines these things. I mean. Um, which is interesting because the first criterion is clearly defined terminology. But I, I think all that is saying is you have to agree upon uh, definitions of quantities that you might be measuring. Um, quantifiability sort of demands that that what you're measuring actually is is in some sense reducible to a number of some kind. Um, I think you can do qualitative things, but I think it gets pretty loosey-goosey pretty fast. Um, 
whereas if you're quantifying things like wavelengths of light rather than you know a subjective interpretation of color, um, you know I, I think you're on firmer ground. Um, number three, highly controlled experimental conditions is is absolutely important. However, one might argue that, well, let's say astrophysics, um, where you really got no control over your experimental conditions. Um, you're not going to argue that astrophysics is not a science. Um, so I think you have to be. Here's one one place where I would agree with Dan for sure. You got you got to be careful. You got to be careful understanding what you mean by highly controlled experimental conditions. Perhaps that means well understood environment in the case of astrophysics. Um, for reproducibility. I know some on the face of it might look at, again, astrophysics and say, well, you can't reproduce anything you're doing with these observational data. Um, but, you know, the comeback to that is, of course, that, yes, you can reproduce because you can make many measurements of different examples of the same thing, and there's your reproducibility. And I, um, I might I might add that, that that's sort of, you could say the same thing in psychology. Uh, you You can observe many, many different people and and just like you can observe many many different supernova, you know, you you can't do the same test on the on the same supernova obviously because the star's mm-hmm. gone. But but <laughs> but there's lots of supernova out there that are happening all the time yeah. that you can. And the same thing with uh, with people. There's lots of people out there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, just uh, not to, uh, sorry for interrupting there, but just to, I'll interrupt you in turn. So all, that's right, fine. all right. But just to clarify, um, I don't think that the, the, the criteria that he set out themselves are – I may have misspoke. I don't think that their selves are not clear. Uh, but just like you said when it comes to the, you know, the well-defined experimental conditions, I think that it's hard to necessarily define how those, are, those different criteria are interpreted for a given scientific discipline or project and, the, and how well a given scientific discipline or project um, – meets those different criteria varies uh, wildly and but yet we would still consider a broad range of that that as being part of science so that's sort of what i meant by that i guess sure sure um and and you know the the fifth criterion we we spent quite a lot of time talking about last week uh last month i guess um and i might add the word falsifiability i mean to go back to karl popper which again we need a show on popper for sure we need to be doing this so just take note, because I'm sure I will float it at some point. Um, Look forward to it. Yeah, I think that would be just that'd be a lot of fun. Um, so you know, this list this is not that different than anything uh, that we've uh, got historically in science. I think uh, I've seen all of these elements in various lists. I, the only additional one might be. I mean, there's no discussion in these five points of not postulating supernatural causes, as we talked about last time. Um, So a methodological naturalism uh, requirement here. But other than that, I think they're, I think they're sound. So uh, we've, we've gone long on this question. So (laughs) maybe we want to, maybe we want to move on to, to something else, unless you guys have additional comments. Oh, that works. Um, okay, turning to Dan. Uh, uh, Dan, a Google search for the phrase meteorology is not a science produced over 11 million hits. Uh, though, to be fair, most of those that I saw were sources upholding the scientific status of meteorology, uh, though uh, they were addressing it as a question that 
needs to be addressed. Uh, looking at Berezo's five criteria, uh, how many other scientific disciplines uh, would you say might have trouble living up to all five? And this, uh, by the way, includes uh, Berezo's own field of uh, biology. Uh, well, that's yeah, that's a really good question, and I think we touched on that just a little bit, so I won't repeat. Um, but I think that, other than just to say that, I think that uh, that the that different disciplines and different particular projects within those disciplines may have trouble from time to time living up to at least some of those standards and, or at least they might uh, interpret those standards differently. Like again, Todd's example of astrophysics, you can't necessarily do a, you can't control the experimental conditions, but you can try to understand the environment better. Um, and, you know, the same thing is true of meteorology. Uh, the weather's happening around us all the time. We can't go out there and control the weather to do an experiment um, unless you think HARP is out there doing stuff. But you can't make a tornado? Uh, apparently not. Oh, well, man. again, if you, if, you, if you ask some people, you could, and the government's been doing it for years. But, yeah, well, that's ridiculous. But anyway. Um, uh, that's it, folks. You have confirmation. You heard it here. <laughs> he admitted that the government is no. doing this. Um, but no, my point is being that you can, uh, you can observe all these things, but you can't repeat those individual events. You can't, um, you can't, uh, stop the tape, rewind the atmosphere and start again. Um, however, you can develop models and that's what I do. I work on computer models and we can control those. And to the extent that those are reasonable facsimiles of what are going on in the atmosphere, that does help us with with that one criterion, but again, it's not a straightforward thing, is this is what I would say, and so I don't really see a priori why psychology would be any worse off than any other science in this regard. Um, if if it is, it may be just as much due to the fact that uh, it's just, it's studying such a difficult subject that's the human mind. And uh, which is, you know, arguably one of the, if not the most complex, you know, uh, object or being out there in the known universe. And so it's, it's a hard problem. So um, I think there's not a huge difference in kind, um, maybe in, of degree, depending on circumstances, but not really of kind. I don't think there's any situation where we could come down and say psychology and sociology are voted off the island's um, ahead of time, if that makes sense. And, you know, you, whenever you build it, whenever you start dismissing another field wholesale like this, you got to be careful because that's a two edged sword and you don't want to cut your own discipline out. So that would just be the caution I would give to folks who, uh, like Berzo did in this article, try to, uh, try to use this kind of argument to completely dismiss an entire discipline. So, that's my spiel. I I, I think that you're you're absolutely right. And the main the main issue seems to be that your subjects um, are not as controllable. <laughs> Certainly not as controllable as a pair of uh, elementary particles that are colliding and annihilating. Um, I mean, we can set up those conditions pretty well. But um, the little kid whose mind you're studying is not necessarily going to act the same way all the time under the same conditions um, and maybe act unpredictably. 
um, which doesn't doesn't cause you problems with regard to defining your studies as scientific. It just makes them a heck of a lot harder. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that's really the key here. It's just a really hard problem, and um, we shouldn't certainly certain bleh, can't talk. Certainly shouldn't fault uh, psychologists based on that. So. Yeah, the, uh, the the level of complexity involved is uh, is tremendous. I was listening to a um, uh, an interview with the neuroscientist uh, Vilyana Ramachandran, uh, who uh, said that um, it's been uh, it's been estimated that the total number of possible neural permutations uh, in the human brain exceeds the number of elementary particles in the known universe. Which doesn't take that much, actually, but it's a big. It is a big number. It's not a. It's not a an outrageous. It's not an outrageously large number, but the combinatorics of of just thinking about neuron activity, you don't actually need that many neurons before you've got huge combinatoric problems for sure. Right. Okay, uh, Todd. Uh, one possible, you know problem in uh, answering this question uh, might come from psychology itself, might come from the diversity within the field of psychology, uh, because on the one hand, uh, psychology includes things uh, like neuroimaging studies and behavioral genetics, uh, while on the other hand, it also includes Jungian dream interpretation and Rorschach inkblots. Um, could part of our answer uh, be that some of psychology is a science, uh, while some is not? Well, I I think there again we've 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 been here a little bit already. Uh, I mean, the the easy answer, of course, is is yes that there are some things which go under the name of psychology that I think have a very hard time holding up as uh, under the scrutiny of Berezo's or any other any other person's um, definitions of the requirements for scientific rigor. Um, the uh, the examples that you gave are, to be fair, sort of at the extremes. Um, the uh, the dream interpretation uh, field, subfield, what have you, um, certainly is out on the fringe on one side, and really on the other, um, uh, neuroimaging studies or behavioral genetics are they're they're in the realm of of things that many people might call biology in fact uh as opposed to as opposed to psychology um and you know the nature of studies that are done there are you know certainly closer to what we would say is is hard science um so those those being the the extremes i think the interesting thing is to to ask about things closer to the middle um and and finding out you know is there a place where you is there a place where you cease to be truly scientific. I suppose there is. It'd be awfully hard to figure out where that place is. Um, but yeah, the, the, the spectrum of things which fall under the, the, the aegis of, of psychology certainly is broad enough that that, that contributes to this problem. Um, I, you know, one, one thing that we haven't talked about, uh, about too much, and it, maybe it falls under the, the, the consideration of the quantifiability criterion, um, is the degree to which 
psychologists engage in studies where the conclusions are quantifiably certain or probable. Um, you know, now most psychological studies that I I see um, do do some kind of statistical analysis of the data that they collect, and um, one of the things that I think is challenging for psychology, and you certainly please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong or if I'm off base on this, but one of the biggest challenges is sample size. Um, because if you're looking at a very small number, and by very small number I'm talking dozens of people, and I've seen lots of presentations of of psych studies that, that involve dozens or, or perhaps a couple hundred participants, um, that's a really small number uh, for somebody who works with you know experiments where we do, where where we study um, some of the things we study are based on sample sizes that are this small. Um, conclusions become rather tentative, uh, have to, and so one re- you know one reaction that I have, and 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 one thing that I uh, think about as I think about these studies that work on really small numbers is it, are the statistics done right so that the conclusions that are drawn are appropriately tentative? Uh, again, another thing we talked about um, last last time was the the need to express only what you can express and not claim what more than what the data allow. Um, so I, I think that may stick in the craw of, of hard scientists frequently, um, is, is the fact that many studies that are done are done with very, very small sample sizes. Um, and so that, you know, that may contribute to the confusion um, as well. Uh, well... Uh, I would say that uh, most psychologists uh, would actually agree with that. Um, and the smaller the sample size that we work with, uh, the more uh, modest and tentative uh, the language should be. Uh, I, the, the fact is that in many of these cases, uh, our scientific idealism uh, conflicts with uh, reality and uh, the the logistics of running studies. Uh, if I want to do uh, a study, for example, that involves uh, the, a neuroimaging study of uh, people who are suffering from right temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, well, I, it's going to be a it's going to be tough to find enough people who are suffering from right temporal lobe epilepsy who are willing to volunteer for the study, uh, who are you know who, who we have enough grant money to fly out uh, to uh, get the brain scanned in the laboratory. So with some of these neuroimaging studies, uh, you do find very small uh, sample sizes, and that's that's a problem. That's uh, that's not ideal. And some of the uh, the clinical uh, psychology studies. Uh, if we're dealing with people who have uh, some of the less well-known uh, psychiatric conditions, uh, we may only have access to a few of those. And so, uh, one of the things that, uh, that that we should see in those research research write-ups is an acknowledgement of the the small sample size as a limitation and a tentativeness to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding uh, the the larger ones, so if you have uh, a hundred or a couple hundred or uh, over a thousand or something like that, <coughs> uh, the statistics behind those uh, have actually been uh, investigated, uh, and 
what we have found is that uh, the the distribution of scores in our sample uh, approaches uh, a correct approximation of the characteristics of the overall population when we reach a certain number of participants. And for most of the studies that we do, uh, the, the way that the math works out is that if there are at least... Uh, I'm, I might be a little bit off. I'm, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I believe 32. I believe 32 participants per uh, group uh, in a study is sufficient for uh, the, uh, the the sample distribution to approximate a, uh, a population distribution. And then when we do that, uh, we also are still building in a certain degree of tentativeness um, there was a, a very brief comment uh, earlier in the episode about uh, probability values. Uh, when we are asking questions uh, such as, you know, is, the, you know, is the average difference in, is there a difference in average scores between run, one group and another group, uh, or are these two continuous variables actually related to each other? Uh, the classic way of doing this uh, is to uh, build in uh, a, a probability calculation to test the likelihood that what we observed was not actually due to a real relationship between the varial, variables, but was just one of those things uh, due to the random whatevers of life. Mm -hmm. And if that probability calculation is small enough, then we're not going. We're still not going to absolutely say that what we found is true, but we are at least going to say that we are confident uh, that we have found something real. And usually the cutoff point uh, is uh, a point zero five. So uh, for those, we are still willing to accept uh, about a one in twenty chance that what we found is a false positive. Uh, and you know, depending on some studies, I've seen it. Uh, they, they'll push it to point zero one for their cutoff. Point zero zero one zero. I've done. I've you know some of the studies that I've done. Uh, the probability values have come out to be less than point zero 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 one. And so I just go, hey, look at that. Woohoo! Uh, there's still that probability, but I, I feel very confident. Uh, under those conditions that uh, I actually did find something real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, we in, in particle physics, we do the same thing. I mean, oftentimes we'll observe some distribution and need to apply uh, statistical tests to say whether this distribution is, this sample uh, is actually drawn from another distribution are, are they the same or are they different um and i mean there are precise statistical tests that one can do and again so i go back and say well you know if you're doing that then you're doing science you're doing a good job with it and and i have no you know no objections whatsoever now Hooray! yes well i mean this is but how many people actually you know certainly i i i suspect that barazo hasn't gone to the trouble of trying to find this out and whether this is actually done in uh, in psychological study studies. And not everybody does, right? I mean, so, um, but again, not everybody treats statistics in the hard sciences properly either, I would have to say. Mm, so, that's um, definitely true. Yeah. 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 And I, so I would I, say that, you know, I, even 
in our in my own work and well not mine necessarily personally but in and even in meteorology there's a lot of misuse of statistics and i'm sure there is in physics too and so you can find examples everywhere yeah i hope i i yeah. hope i do a good job with that but well that's you know half ha- half of what i do so I, I i think is is in in you know studying the uh, you know coming to the proper inference from the experimental data the data that takes time to collect but once you've got it collected once you've got it um you know quantified in, in whatever terms that you're 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 needing to um then it's all down to the statistics and what do you do with that information so um anyway i you know i think we're uh we do see a range we see a real range in the rigor um uh that is applied within psychology and yes so the long answer the conclusion the summary <laughs> the long answer is yes uh the the range does give uh you know give give some cause for concern okay um now if we turn a little bit more toward a historical consideration dan another angle on this uh might be that psychology is a relatively young discipline uh is still in the process of emerging from its non-scientific past as a branch of philosophy uh and that the field's current status might be better characterized as a work in progress uh that may one day fully become a science uh if if i if i remember correctly i believe that's uh thomas kuhn's uh position on uh, psychology. Uh, anyway, th- this would imply that uh, the more scientific a field becomes, the less philosophy it contains. Uh, if we set it up as this sort of linear historical uh, process, um, so what do you think of that approach, Dan? And uh, also, uh, how philosophy-free uh, would you say the hard sciences are? Yeah, um, I had to think a lot about this, but uh, I guess the I would uh, maybe frame it slightly differently. I, I'm not sure i totally agree that the more scientific a field is the less philosophy it has or should have i just what i do think is that the that philosophy plays as a as a scientific field as a field matures in in science the philosophy that's part of that plays less of a role of actually trying to gain knowledge about the piece of nature that the field is about and it's more of a role of uh, framing what sorts of questions get asked, you know, what sorts of implications they have, broader implications, what counts as good and bad scientific method for that field, what counts as the scientific knowledge you're getting out of it, and, you know, how how well you frame the questions, and then even the clear terminology and such. How, how do you define that? And so I think philosophy still is there. It's just not – it's not trying to – get do the work that the science itself is doing um if that makes sense um so in that sense yes i think that as as a as a field matures the less philosophy it contains as far as that the philosophy is not seen as as valid in gaining the knowledge gaining knowledge um if that makes sense but um but i think that all scientific fields are are works in progress you know uh and and some of them are are definitely more mature than others uh uh, meteorology is a, I would say, a fairly young science in the modern sense, um, but it's it's matured quite well, um, especially in the the last half of the 20th century, um, and when we've got we've 
we've got some well-established and well-evidenced theoretical frameworks for how different scales of motion in the atmosphere work that are repeatable, testable, and, and explain a lot of the data. And I, you know, I can't speak for psychology because I don't know much of the history about it. Um, but I, it, who knows, maybe it is taking a slower road. Um, but that's not necessarily a knock against it. Um, you, you could answer that question better than me. Um, but you know, I would say that if it stagnates, you know, and you don't really get to an improved knowledge of human minds and behavior over a long period of time and what that period is, I couldn't even begin to say, um, that might be a sign that something might be amiss. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's been the case. So again, you would know more about that than I would. So, um, and again, I want to reiterate, I think a lot of times uh, part of this issue is that the subject matter of, of, of psychology is just such a difficult thing. And uh, that, I think that plays a lot into this, too. So that, that's, that's what I think. Right. Uh, and I think it would, be, uh, it would be interesting for us to do some episodes at some point uh, uh, talking about the history of our respective disciplines. Absolutely. Yes. I think that would be great. Yeah. Uh, so, Todd, in uh, preparation for this uh, discussion, I emailed you a few links uh, relating to the American Psychological Association's recent push for uh, greater recognition of psychology as a STEM discipline. Uh, could uh, you provide us with a brief summary and uh, uh, tell us what you think about this initiative? Well, you gave me a – that was a big load to read. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, so I will try to cut down. I will. I try to give a summary of the summary. Um, you know, as you, as all of you know, as our readers, listeners, readers, we're not a book. Uh, oh, we are <laughs> of, as, nature. of nature. As our listeners know, uh, surely. STEM is all the rage right now, uh, for better or worse. Um, STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We have governors trying to pump up enrollments in STEM fields by giving discounts at, for, for STEM degrees at their universities. STEM is being pushed in public schools as the, to the, in my opinion, to the detriment of language arts and fine arts sometimes, such that uh, you've got what I think are really ridiculous courses called in quotes, engineering being taught and required for second graders and third graders. Um, and I, I think that's just misguided, ultimately. Um, we're at a time, though, where everybody wants to push STEM as essential for our future, future as though for every student, you got to go into a STEM field. Um, and as a means of... I think as, as a means of aiding the decline that we've seen in, in enrollments in, in what are traditionally traditionally what are currently called the stem fields i think it's a it's a good thing to think about what we can do to um sort of stem sorry the flow of uh of, of people out of stem <laughs> i saw i saw what yeah. you did there yeah. <laughs> you know i i think i think it's a good i think it's good to do to try to do something about you know especially you know girl my 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 daughter's 14 my my oldest daughter's 14 um suddenly Math isn't exciting anymore, and math is sort of being good at math is something that uh, is not so socially acceptable. I think we have to think about how how we how we address that. Um, but uh, you know, rant off. So STEM is being pushed. 
Um, we are trying to get more people in for good reasons, for not so good reasons, into STEM fields. And I think because that train is moving, that's why the APA is is trying to latch on to some, to, it, it, at least for for part of their motivation. Um, because hey, you know, there's 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 hopefully increased funding coming through STEM, ed, you know, STEM education and to STEM education and STEM research, and um, because psychologists generally would see themselves as scientists, they are 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 ready to to jump aboard that that train. Um, and I don't blame I don't blame them for that at all. Um, the mo the 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 the, the, the um, the efforts that are called for in the documents that uh, that I looked over um, generally are, are are trying to to do a few things to improve public understanding of of psychological science as a science um, to increase advocacy at the federal level for um, more psychologists in leadership as science advisors, let's say. I'm just picking off a few things from, from these documents. Um, for more funding for psychological research and training. Um, for common cause making with non-psychological science for general advocacy of, of, of studies in general science, uh, in science across the board. Um, at the local level, um, aiming to increase resources within colleges and universities for research in psychology, um, connecting local uh, uh, people and communities to the benefits of research, um, outreach in general for uh, for the general public to to increase enrollments, let's say, in in uh, social science, but in particular in psychological uh, science fields. Um, they talk in these documents also about um, promoting psychology within K-12 education, um, requiring higher standards for psychology teachers in schools, um, where a science certification, not just a social studies certification, should be required. Um, by the way, I think that's a good thing. Um, getting psych into... Um, STEM enrichment programs. So you have engineering, you have physics, you have chemistry for, um, you know, added enrichment activities after school. Why not psychology too? Um, they're arguing. Um, and also with the under, you know, the undergrad level um, to uh, get psychology into um, uh, the, the STEM disciplines means more research funding for undergraduate assistants, uh, more visibility for psychology as a science. Um, so I think all these efforts are, are you know, partly partly coming about because of the widespread push to increase STEM education um, and psychology sitting there saying, why not us too? Um, do I think it's a good idea? Do I, well, maybe I, maybe the, the question to ask um, is this. Do I agree that psychology should be included as a core STEM discipline, which is a very clear call that this these documents make? Um, and I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm ambivalent about it. I don't have any doubts about psychology being a science. It just, it, it really seems like an outlier, um, um, when I regard the other fields that are usually included in in this discussion of STEM fields, um, and 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 maybe that's unfair, and I I'm just I, I wrestled with what I might say to that 
Um, because, you know, to the degree to which it is rigorously scientific, why not? Um, but at the same time, in so many ways, because of the subject matter studied, it's so different than the other sciences that are involved. So I don't know. I guess I, I'm, I'm still trying to think over this um, um, after having looked at it only very briefly. Well, certainly fair enough. Uh, thinking about your comment uh, about your daughter, my oldest daughter is uh, five and uh, very good at math. Uh, for her age, I was uh, very impressed uh, how well she's doing picking up patterns in it. Uh, the other day we're having uh, supper, and she looks at me and she says, Five plus four is nine. And I said, That's right, very good. And she, and she thought for a second and she went, Fifty plus forty is ninety. I'm going, yeah, that's right. So I I really hope that she doesn't hit a point where math is not cool with trying to encourage her in that. Yeah, I think there's big social stigma. There really is, especially for girls. Um, yeah. The, yes. Yeah. 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 If so we uh, work hard. Yep. Actually, I don't know. Maybe that could be a, a possible future episode. I think uh, the, the whole uh, women in STEM fields mm -hmm. uh, issue. Mm -hmm. So, Dan, uh, how about the social aspect of this? Uh, this was touched on, uh, uh, Todd touched on this a, a bit. Why is there such a fuss uh, over whether or not it, uh, a field of study counts as a quote-unquote real science? Uh, does it actually matter? Well, you know, it... <laughs> if, you're, if your field is considered a science, that you know, gives you cred, that gives you street cred, you know, you're for better or for worse, more well-regarded in the Academy, uh, the way our, um, the way our culture is. Um, and there's good things for that and, and bad things for that. I think that's a good part of it. Um, and, you know, people want to feel like they're doing something worthwhile to advance human knowledge. And, you know, in our age, science is at the forefront of that. It's obviously not the only thing, but it's supposed to be at least doing that. So if your entire field is excluded from that, you know, it's going to cause, understandably cause some of those practitioners of that field to be upset. So even if it, even if, even if at the end of the day, it turns out that what they're doing is still useful and good to advance the human condition, it's still going to cause some of that, you know, bad feelings and, uh, perceptions matter in other words, um, and also, as uh, as Berzo, I think that's how you pronounce the name, as as uh, as Berzo himself admits, um, other scientists do want to defend their turf. You know, again, for better or for worse. I mean, we're all humans, um, and if they see an, another field out there stepping in, trying to claim this scientific status without, at least in their perception, demonstrating that they're actually capable of doing that, of capable of meeting those criteria. Um, again, the, even if it, this is only a mischaracterization or a misunderstanding, um, they'll also be annoyed and at the intrusion because, at least ostensibly, they care so much about rigorous science. So there are both good motives and uh, bad motives for this fuss. And, you know, it's true that some people are just going to be spiteful and want to feel good about themselves. And the fact that oh, I'm a scientist and you're not. 
you know, like they, they see it as a zero sum game, which is unfortunate, but I, I, I truly hope that isn't the motivation for most folks in this, but I mean, it's possible that that's a part of it too. All right. Uh, we, uh, seem to be drawing near the end of our time. So I'll, uh, just send this around the horn. Uh, uh, Dan, any last thoughts, any last comments? Just that psychologists should keep plugging away at their science and always try to improve their methods and the, and their rigor and not worry too much about what other people think about their field and the proof will be in the pudding. Okay. Todd? Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I would, I, would, I would echo those thoughts. Um, and I, would, I, I guess one thing that came up as I was listening to Dan uh, in this last little bit talking about the social thing um, and this brings up in my mind yet another possible topic for a future show um, is that since science is, I mean, this, and this, this connects to last week, the last time as well, um, since science is the way forward uh, as society sees it um, and is so connected to our progress as a, as a species, um, this has a broad impact outside the sciences in the academy. So that the humanities, in order to be respectable, um, those who practice in the humanities are pushed to be more rigorously scientific, as it were. Um, and that is a huge impact. And I, you know, there's an article that I uh, that I know of, um, again in the same journal that I, you know, I, I threw one at you the last time I hosted. Um, uh, is an article on this question of what happens to the humanities when it is deemed necessary by the university administration or by the academy in general for them to become more scientific in what they do. That, I think, doesn't necessarily give positive uh, results. I, I totally and, agree with that. I don't think that it's necessarily true that every field out there should be trying to become more like science. In fact, I think that's, that's not true. Yeah. yeah. And, and they shouldn't feel any worse off for that. Yep. Yep. So I, I, you know, I think that part, part of, you know, part, part of what we're facing is this very question of, um, you know, the scientificization of everything. Um, and, you know, really, we got to think long and hard about what the upshot of that is um, within the academy and without. Okay. All right, listeners, if you want to join the conversation, uh, that email address, once again, is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and a Facebook page for the show is still in the works. Uh, we will uh, let you all know when it is up and running. Uh, show notes will be available at www.christianhumanist.org. Next episode, uh, the topic is yours to choose. Dan, what do you have in mind for us? Well, I think we're going to talk about faith and essentially what 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 is faith? How do we define it? What do we mean when we say we have faith in God or, or faith in other people? or faith in the Bible, and what specifically what does it mean in a religious sense, and how does that compare with, say, reason, how, and how other ways of knowing in regards to that. So it, it's, it's a big topic. We're obviously not going to touch everything with that, but I think it's an important one. So we're going to give it a shot next time. All right. Very big topic, yes. 
All right. Uh, the Book of Nature podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is uh, Kristen Philippic. So, on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I am Charles Hackney. Thanking you for joining us for another hour inquiring into the Book of Nature. Look for us next time when Dan will be leading our discussion. Until then, sayonara, solid citizens.